I think being a good steward of community over competition truly just means going out and and looking for ways to support, to encourage, to uplift, to just just be the reason that other people still believe there are good people in the world. Like go out and 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 be that person, be that good person that this world needs. Leading with the lens of community over competition is much more than a well-worn hashtag. A leader who chooses community over competition in action is able to navigate the nuance of the both and, can hang with the complex, can appreciate paradox. All this requires heavy emotional lifting along with a deep practice and capacity for curiosity over certainty. Most importantly, choosing community over competition boldly bridges the divide of the figurative other while cultivating a generous leadership that is still deeply wrapped in boundaries, values, and accountability. Yet, the burdens of comparison are exhausting and can plague the best of us by hijacking your capacity to see there is room for success for all. True story. (laughs) Not what we hear on the internet, right? The weight of bitterness and jealousy move you away from community and towards isolation. The fear of missing out and being misunderstood shuts down generosity and robs you of your peace. Community over competition in action is a beast to live in a world plagued with scarcity. You see, this kind of leading calls on all of us to do the work to address insecurities, to address our fears of being misunderstood, to address the deep desire to be right and win at the expense of the relationship. Because if you don't do this work, If we all don't do this work, we will continue to implode from turning on each other and no one will really win. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with leaders whose burdens have inspired their life's work. Our goal is to learn how they've addressed these burdens, how they rise from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. Community over competition is indeed a well-worn hashtag. (laughs) The cynical can dismiss it. Those beat up after year after year of injustice understandably can call BS to it. But in practice, leading with the lens of community over competition is subversive and culture shifting. Community over competition requires deep lifelong work to unburden the load we carry of scarcity and comparison. In a highly connected dopamine-infused world where billions of dollars are spent to cultivate not enough to get us to buy, to vote, to believe a certain way, leading with community over competition is an antidote to the noise. But leading this way comes at a cost. It comes at the cost of the quick and easy. It is not efficient. At least it feels that way in the short term. It is super uncomfortable and forces you to face the parts of you that are not Instagram friendly. And I also know that you are here for this. I know I am. You are here for showing up online and in person in a way that does not feel out of alignment. You're craving depth and are willing to give up the quick wins that just appease the surfacey image and metrics that truly fizzle quickly. You know this is a way to lead that brings you home to your truth and cultivates a boundary generosity that is contagious and necessary right now, which is why I am really excited to share with you this nuanced conversation with founder of the Community Over Competition Movement, 
Natalie Frank. Natalie is a writer. Her new book is coming out soon and you don't want to miss it. Speaker, entrepreneur, and community builder on a mission to empower small business owners to rise together doing what they love. She leads the Rising Tide Society and has mobilized over 75,000 creatives in the spirit of community over competition around the world. And when she's not helping people turn their passions into sustainable livelihoods, she's chasing after her toddler and calling up everyone she reaches to be a force for good to themselves and their community. (laughs) This interview has had so many moments of gold in it. It was really hard to focus on one theme. Listen carefully and be ready to take notes. Pay attention to the two different approaches to sharing online Natalie used and why she chose the path she did for each situation she discussed. Listen for how Natalie unpacks the power of connection and community in the online space using boundaries and clarity of intent. And notice her unique lens on the metaphor of the arena in terms of community over competition. Natalie calls us up on how we can move forward from the lessons learned in 2020. This conversation is a gift, and I am so honored to welcome Natalie Frank to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Natalie, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. And in typical Unburdened Leader fashion, we just jump right into the deep stuff. And so I want you to take us back to the day that you discovered that you had a brain tumor. And I'd love for you to share all that you were navigating in business and life when you received that news. I was in my very early 20s and I had just gotten engaged to my high school sweetheart. And prior to receiving that news, I was building a budding wedding photography business in my hometown of Annapolis. I was getting ready to marry my best friend. I was worrying about wedding details and creating Pinterest boards and juggling sort of a transition into full-time photography in that season. I had just graduated from college and I had built the business over a number of years while I was in school and actually used the business to help pay for school. But it was that transitional season where I was leaving school and stepping into adult life and full-time entrepreneurship and all of the hard aspects of transitioning into a new season that we experience in different stages of our life. And so it was sort of this really interesting season but also a very anticipatory season of getting excited for a wedding in the spring, dreaming of you know what was to come in my career and in my life and wanting to start a family and just sort of a lot of big goals at that at that stage. This was you know right around this actually this time, right around October of that year. And you know, in kind of preparing to get married, one of the things that, you know, I had kind of dealt with over the years were just some fairly overlooked uh, symptoms. I had migraines, weight loss, weight gain without changes to diet or exercise frequently throughout my adult life. You know, I dealt with, and I still do deal with chronic depression, anxiety, but 
Also, since we dive in deep here on Unburdened Leader, I had stopped getting my period in my teen years and it never returned. And so I finally, you know, in preparing to get married and wanting to start a family, took charge of my own health and my reproductive health and went and saw my OBGYN. And upon talking to her about everything that I had been experiencing, she didn't write me off. And she was one of the first doctors that didn't write me off. She really listened and she said, yeah, you know, a lot of this, it, it, it isn't normal as something could be wrong here. So let's take a deeper look. And so in that season, I think I kind of was joyful to feel validated uh, in in kind of what I had been experiencing on the personal side, but also still have having only experienced being an able-bodied individual could never have fathomed what I was about to walk into. And, you know, we did a multitude of tests, crossing off a lot of the more common and likely cases of, of my symptoms. And ultimately, it led to a brain MRI and um, wanting to unpack why certain hormone levels in my body were so unbelievably out of whack. And that brain MRI led us to finding a benign mass sort of in the center of my brain, right around my pituitary gland and my pituitary stalk, and very, very close to where your optic nerves cross in a location called the optic chiasm, and um, nearly touching my optic nerves. And it was a macro-sized tumor, which in pituitary speak, there's micro and macro, and it was already in sort of a a larger size for that small section of the brain. And so um, immediately just kind of hit a break on everything going on in my world. And, you know, it was um, a really, really difficult time. For me, though, if I'm being completely honest – less difficult than surgery, which came, you know, I guess maybe five-ish years down the road from that diagnosis point, partially, which I think will unpack today, but partially because I think I was still learning to accept this reality. I was still struggling to let go of my previous identity, internalized identity of who I was and what my life would look like in, you know, receiving this diagnosis was also told that I was infertile, you know, and and kind of having to navigate that as a soon to be newlywed was a really difficult thing as someone that had placed a lot of my identity and dare I even say being raised Catholic, my worth um, in motherhood and in my ability to, to procreate and having to rewrite my own perceptions of self-worth and challenge the ideologies that have been passed down to me. It was a tough season. It was a tough season of having to to change a lot of that and to step into becoming a different version of me and to awakening deeper realizations about myself and who I wanted to be in the world and coming to understand that my worth and my value are inherent in who I am and not what I can contribute or produce or go on to do that they you know are knit within me from the moment of my creation. They're not changed by anyone or anything. I had to really approach that um, head on in that season. And at the time, it felt like the world was stopped and changing. And yet looking back, I realized it was just like the first stepping stone to sort of a very different reality that I've lived in in all the years that have followed. Yeah, we're living in a culture of hard stops right now. But I'm thinking back, you were what, around 2022? 20, mm-hmm. Yes. So, and, and you know, my my nerd brain goes to, wow, your, your brain wasn't even done developing yet. Usually it's about mid-20s when that happens. You're ready to launch warp speed. You have a business planning a new life and you had this hard stop and really reckoning with your identity and your worth. 
And that, that that's a big rumble, especially at that season. A lot of people are so often committed on the doing. And this health scare really brought you to reckoning with a lot of that stuff. One one thing that struck me as I was prepping for this interview is your decision to keep the diagnosis private, like inner circle in the vault. At least that's the impression I'm getting private up until your surgery. Can you can you share a little bit about your decision to keep that so private uh, for so long? Yes, I I did. You're 100% right. I did not share about it. Even when you say inner circle, I mean, it was inner circle. It was my closest family, my closest friends. You know, and I think there there's sort of two real reasons for, for why I did that for so long. The first being that I myself really struggled to accept the diagnosis. I think mm. I felt as though by not acknowledging it, it wasn't real or it didn't have to be. It didn't have to be real. It didn't have to be recognized. And surgery for me was that reckoning. Surgery for me and needing surgery was that moment of having to fully adopt this reality and step forward into it boldly for the first time. I kind of, for those, it was roughly five years, for those five years that I kept it private, I think I was working through psychologically navigating my new reality and I wasn't really ready to accept it. And then the other side of that was the professional side, the small business side, the reality that being a wedding photographer who could go blind at any minute was maybe not a, a great branding communication move. And no. so I was very <laughs> hesitant to be open about my diagnosis. I knew that if I even said the words, you know, pituitary glance, someone would Google it and see that you know, blindness or loss of peripheral vision was something that's very common with my diagnosis. And for me in particular, you know, starting to do my visual field examinations for the first time, I got glasses for the first time in that season by doing all those tests and, and learning more about my vision and how it was being impacted by, by my mm. tumor. And so I think I just was very afraid of losing this business that I had built, of being judged harshly by potential clients, and just that fear. I think it really was fear that kept me quiet. How often does fear keep us quiet in so many ways? Mm. And just, yeah, that that hesitancy. And I'll add one more thing as a professional. You know, I, I really... We touch on identity a little bit, but I really did not want to assume the identity of being the photographer with the brain tumor. I didn't want to become someone that kind of had this diagnosis be who I was or be the one thing people knew about me. I really deeply wanted to be known for the impact I was making and for the people I was serving and the business I was building and the life I was building. And I was very much afraid, I think, of losing that and afraid of kind of shifting gears into a different external perception. You know, and again, this is all trying to step back into a season prior to me sharing and stepping forward in vulnerability and the learnings that also came with that, good and bad. But it was a very, very real season. And I know a lot of people listening to this have things that they also have kept very close to the chest that they have guarded fiercely. And so, you know, it's it's something I think a lot of us experience at different points in our lives. Not everything is public all the time. <laughs> no, well... No, and more people need to probably practice that, but uh, that's a different conversation. The, you know, I'm struck 
by that. Yes, that common humanity piece of not what we, we what lengths we go to to avoid being misunderstood, and also to have an identity put on us that we don't want to own. And honestly, like what little control we have that we can spin and brand and hashtag the heck out of things. But man, people sure love to compartmentalize and categorize and, and, and I don't think it's malicious always, but um, it's so limiting and we don't want to be limited in how we're understood. And sometimes you're right. I'm just struck by how that fear of being misunderstood or labeled does keep us small and quiet. So with that said, and the wisdom that you have now, looking back, would you still choose to keep it private for so long? Why or why not? Oh, you know, I think there were real lessons that I learned by keeping it private for so long. Um, Lessons that I don't know if I'd want to give up. And I think living in both worlds was one of them, like living in the world where for those years it was private and then being able to step into a different season where I was very open about it and I still am very open about it and open about things now that I never would have been open about had I not tried to hide certain parts of who I was for so long. So I don't know if I would change it just for the sake that the lessons learned were so valuable and have transformed Mm. my life in ways that I don't think I would ever want to not understand and empathize with that other reality. You know, it it's it's actually been really powerful to now that I have shared my story and I went through my surgery pretty publicly and explained all the complications very publicly. Like I I have connected and that that sense of community and relationship with so many people that aren't sharing publicly or to tell me things they wouldn't tell even their closest friends because there is that sense of um, shared experience and that ability to deeply connect to the experiences maybe that someone else is walking through. And, you know, I, I, I don't know, it's, it's, it's given me this ability, I think, to understand both sides for how we navigate, you know, difficult seasons, potentially traumatic seasons. Some um, people are, are very open about sharing right from the start and others aren't. And I'm grateful that I, I've been able to live in both worlds and see both worlds. So I'm not not sure that I would change it. You know, I, I really value that. And I think, and the reason why I'm, I'm hanging out here is, is we live in a culture that one feels entitled to know everything, especially if you put yourself out there. So there's the entitlement and kind of expectation. And then there is sometimes this other part of, I have to share it all and share it all right now before doing the inner work to kind of heal and get your own clarity before you take that story to the outside of the inner, inner circle. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting tension. And I know, you know, you do a lot of work in the online space. So And I had a mentor to me talk about how she saw the difference between personal and private early on in my venturing into the online space. And it it really blew my mind. So I'm curious for you, how do you discern personal and private in the age of hyper, hyper communication and expectation to know it all and know it all now? (laughs) I I love that. I've never heard someone communicate it in such a way of just even the personal versus the private. They're very different things. Right. Yeah, they are. They really are. The discernment comes down to a couple of things. I think first and foremost, the question I always ask is, you know, is this something that impacts others beyond myself? Um, And that goes both ways. So one that means, you know, does that impact my family? my husband, my, my son. Um, and in the case now of, you know, being more open about infertility, it has been something where I check in with my husband 
is it okay if I share this in this season? Because although I may be the one physically enduring most of the treatment that we go through, he also endures a lot of the emotional hardship and the labor of having Absolutely. be in this season with me and endure these failing rounds with me. And so that's the first question is sort of like for me, does this impact others? And if so, you know, checking in with them before making any decision, if I have a feeling in my heart, like I want to be open about it, to just check in, to, to check in and to talk through it. And, um, you know, in my case, my husband is very, very supportive of when I decide to be open and has just been actually like a very much empowering force in that and just encouraging me to to move forward. So that's the first question I kind of look at. And then, and then the second question is, you know, have I sat with this long enough to really understand how to communicate it in a way that will bring about more good in the world than harm? And what I mean by that is I think sometimes when we are going through a cathartic season or we are in the trauma, like we are living in the pain, it can be very difficult to communicate in a way that doesn't actually bring about more harm, either to ourselves or to others. And um, everyone's going to be different in how they look at this. But for me, it just comes back to that. It's, it's you know, when I share this story kind of checking in with myself around what is the intention? What am I hoping to gain? What am I hoping that my community gains? Because for me as a community leader, I have to look at it both ways. And so if it's, for example, you know, sharing about needing brain surgery in that season when I did go to share, it was about checking in and saying, okay, what is it that I really want to gain from this? And and it was a, a variety of things, but it was, you know, creating a more transparent environment where I, you know, didn't feel the need to hide anymore, where I could step kind of into my reality and share that reality more openly with others. Also heading into surgery, it was desperately desiring connection and desperately desiring a sense of solidarity with others, like having folks that really knew what we were walking through that could come alongside us on that journey that that did come alongside us and also opening up a space for that positive energy, those prayers, giving people an opportunity to feel a part of the story, to feel and, and lean into, you know, being a part of, of our, our journey as should they want to. And many people did. And so for me, like kind of running through that understanding of have I sat with this long enough to where I really understand what I'm saying and how I'm saying it, the impact that will have on me, the impact that might have on others. And I kind of, I've applied that sort of methodology to a lot of things that we've shared from, you know, my brain surgery to infertility treatment to when we got pregnant, same thing. Like, how do I convey this message in a world where so much of my community is struggling with miscarriage, recurrent loss, infertility, and longing for a happy ending of their own? How do I celebrate in a way that's still empathetic to so many people that I love? And and so in each of those seasons, and again, it's not just like the darkness, it's also those joyful moments, like thinking through how we share. And perhaps in my case, it's a little bit of overthinking, but it's always served me really well to just try and work through it first internally, and then think through how it might be received externally in a way, again, that's like striving to bring about more good than harm in those those cases and scenarios. Yeah, I'm, I'm struck what you maybe would, would call overthinking. I call boundaries and discernment and ethics um, and values. And what also struck me as you were answering that question, not once did you bring up how this was going to land with your business, how this was mm-hmm. going to help your business. This wasn't a marketing issue. That's just noteworthy. 
in our age. And, and I, I don't actually, I'm not opposed to people sharing their story and integrating that into their work and their life at, in no way criticizing that, but this really slowing down process of really being honest with yourself. What's my motivation? Getting permission from those who would be impacted, communicating that by you sharing. So slowing that process down and really staying curious about the impact you're desiring. And you keep talking about that impact being beyond you or your business too. I mean, it is part of you. Is this going to help me in my healing? And, and I think that's what I really became aware of you, you, I mean, I think I knew about kind of some of the things you're doing on a bigger level, but when you were going into surgery and I was so captivated um, by your words and your vulnerability, it felt different to me. And I think that's what drew me into you and your leadership of this is just, I'm scared. I, and I could tell you did the back end work and you're like, we've been on this journey. So here's where you come in. If you want to join me, it was a, even permission there. Like, here's what's going on. And I, I just really valued that. And it's so refreshing. And to be an active participant in cheering somebody on who's going through a big struggle does feel grounding and anchoring and it does facilitate community and connection, all the things that we're wired for. Right. So I, I appreciate your process. And, and again, if, if that's overthinking, then we need maybe a little bit more of that and, and permission to go slower. Does it mean we're going to miss out on opportunities? As I look at the community that you've built with such integrity and intention by going through that process. So I think we have a lot to learn from you in that area. So thank you for sharing that. So you, you've mentioned your infertility struggles, and I, I, I do want to touch on that because you took a different route of sharing, right? And, and so what struck me is you kind of were doing this, you were doing this more real time of, of expanding your family. You have one child and, and now, now having some real disappointments and sharing that recently mm-hmm. with fertility. And I, I personally, I'm biased. I, I, I value these stories. I think this is an area where people have suffered silently way too many people suffer. And so I'm grateful that more people can say, okay, me too, me too. And then also people who've come out of it and experienced joys. And, and so I, I'm really grateful with the tender nuance of sharing your story. But tell me a little about you sharing your disappointment with these recent rounds of fertility treatment as you begin the journey to have another child. What fueled your decision to share this loss so quickly after you experienced in this health concern? Mm. Truthfully, I am in a much different place today than I was going through this with my son. And I think that it's really important to acknowledge that first and foremost, because in starting fertility treatment for Huey, which is my my son, we really did not know whether we would be able to have a child of our own. A lot of women, especially with my diagnosis, men as well, um, but women, especially with my diagnosis, are not able to have their own children. Um, and I knew that. And, and we had known that for a number of years. So in going through it with Huey, I did not open up about our infertility journey until we were on the other side of it. And at that point I did. I shared that we did fertility treatment to conceive him and I started opening up slowly by slowly by slowly. This time around, I 
really wanted to commit to doing it a little bit differently. I think I'm learning with each stage of my life, just turned 30. I'm learning that, you know, each time that I push myself beyond my comfort zone a little bit more and a little bit more, I see the fruits of that labor. I see the connections deepened. I see the impact made. I you know, very rarely have to deal with the things that I worry about the most when it comes to that. You know, we all have reasons why we struggle with being vulnerable in in different moments of our life. And oftentimes my fears are much larger than the reality of the difficulty on the other side. So true. And I've learned that, right? We We really do. We envision the absolute worst case scenario. And sometimes I'm sure that does unfold, but for the most part, it doesn't. And so- this time around, I really wanted to to navigate it a little bit differently. And I, I, you know, truthfully going into it as well, I, I thought it would be much easier the second time because it took a while with Huey to figure out a combination of injections and hormones that could fake what my brain should have been doing for, you know, the last 20 years um, or 15 years, however long. And so it took a while to get to a point of really understanding how to manipulate the medical needs that I have in order to get a shot at this. And I thought, well, we figured that out. So this time around, it's going to be so much easier. But this time around, my hormone levels were different. And this time mm-hmm. around, you know, indicating that years and years and years of your brain not functioning impacts your ovaries in a way that makes it difficult to get eggs that are good enough to, you know, weather the storm of fertilization and implantation and navigating those very, very volatile, you know, days after ovulation. And and just for me realizing, okay, this time around, it's different. And this time around, we may not um, get the happy ending that we're looking for. And sharing those disappointments, um, you know, we've been, we're now into the autumn and we started treatment again as soon as fertility clinics opened early spring. They were closed due to COVID and they reopened in my state. And um, months and months and months of those injections on and off, nothing working. You know, it's been interesting sharing that and navigating a new sort of disappointment where in the past, the retrospective privilege of sharing after something has happened gives you more control. Whereas Mm -hmm. when you're sharing as you're enduring it, you're surrendering that and you're opening up that disappointment to people that also love you. And that's been really hard for me, knowing that when I have sad news, people feel it too. And that the people who love me feel the disappointment in the same moment that I'm feeling it. It's been a little bit harder than I think I thought it would be. But that being said as well, the empathy and the love and the comfort received in real time is also more supportive than I think I could have fathomed. Like being able to find out a round failed and just open up and say, hey, you know, this last round failed. And right now we're taking a break for a couple of months. We don't know what our next steps are going to be. We're still trying to decide if we want to continue or how we want to continue. And, and being able to open up and just kind of be honest about where we're at, it, it's invited people to really and truly love us in a season when we need it. So often as a leader, I think you become accustomed to supporting others 
and always pouring out for others and always being the cheerleader, being the encourager, being the one who, you know, listens on the other side of a difficult conversation and forgetting that leaders also sometimes need to be nurtured as well and need that reciprocal, you know, feedback, support, encouragement, and love, especially in hard seasons. We tend to compartmentalize and almost put ourselves in a different category where we forget that we are human and that we sometimes will need help. I don't know if anyone else feels like that, but I I certainly do. And so going through these disappointments, like these these not happy endings in real time, the messy middle of what is life. It's also been just, I think, a lesson in enabling yourself to be loved in return, like when pouring out to others so frequently to to be able to receive comfort when you need it. But it certainly has not not been easy. And, uh, you know, it's it's a story currently being written. Like we're living in a chapter that we don't know the ending of quite yet. And so my hope is that in writing it with others, it feels just a little bit less lonely. Mm, gosh. Yeah, absolutely. Having a little bit more of that common humanity, that connection. And another thing you said that really struck me was that when you share real time, you have less control as opposed to kind of like the post reflection of something. And outside of even this personal nature of what you're going through, I think that is leadership 101 is if we're trying to lead from a place and live from a place where we're controlling everything. And that's not leadership. That's that's scarcity. That's fear. That's rigidity. Right. And that's not the impact that we're here for. So really being able to sit with the vulnerability and really owning it. So something like this that you're sharing real time is such a lesson to any of us in how we show up in our lives. I mean, and that how much control do we really have? The other thing you said that I, I resonate with is that capacity and necessity to receive. And I get worried about the leaders. I, I'm a little, I get scared by the leaders to say, I don't need anything. But when I see leaders that have set up systems of support and reciprocity, as you talked about, and acknowledge that we can't give what we don't have, it is, you know, just the physics of energy. And maybe we don't get that from everyone we're leading. We have to be discerning on where we get our cups filled, but recognizing that that is the physics of leadership that we need to be poured into so we can continue to show up. So thank you for naming that so beautifully. For you right now, what's the most difficult part of this journey? We've touched a little bit on letting go control. I, I mm-hmm. think surrendering is is part of that. But I also think that in many other aspects of my life, I feel like, you know, I have some way to contribute to the outcome. That the failure, even if it comes, right, has been influenced by something that I have done or could have done better or could learn from in the future and could iterate upon or innovate on or, you know, grow and and become a better person. Dealing with infertility in particular has made it abundantly clear that the amount of control we have in Mm. most aspects of our lives, and this one being just more visible to me, are, are far more limited than we realize. And knowing that I did nothing to cause my diagnosis, I 
could not have prevented my diagnosis. No amount of perfect supplements and exercise and caring for myself and meditation on repeat can, you know, ensure that a round is going to be successful. And having to embrace failure as something that is beyond my control and also ensure that there is a boundary around failing and myself feeling like a failure. Yes. Right? Yes, yes, yes. It's oh, so important. Essential. And so yes. yet a challenge. Oftentimes we kind of absorb those failures and we, or at least I have a tendency to absorb them as if they are me or a part of me or a part of my identity. And so navigating infertility has just been that reminder that there must be a boundary and that we have to fight for that boundary to remember that um, those failures, those instances in which we don't have the outcome that we desire are not a reflection of us, our worth, our value, um, none of that, right? That it's it's separate. Yes. It is it is different. We have to fight for that boundary because that's once our worthiness gets tied into external factors, it is a slippery slope mm-hmm. to feeling pretty crappy. And I, I love that having a boundary. I'm just thinking about this, like how we create these boundaries around our worthiness. And it doesn't mean it's not a wall, but this boundary of my worthiness isn't ever going to expire. It's not ever something that depreciates. It's true. And I love that I'm still going to be invested in the outcome, whatever it is. I love how you said that. I'm like, you know what? I'm invested in this outcome. I'm not only going to own the victories. I'm invested in going for it. I know where I want to go, but whatever the outcome, I'm invested and I own that. That is badass. I love that mindset. And there's a sense of just, there's a grounding sense when, when I just say, even say that out loud, like I'm invested in this. I know where I want to go. I'm not sure if that's where we're going to end up, but regard wherever we do, I'm invested in it and we'll take it from there. Um, okay. So you wear many hats. How are you caring for yourself right now as you toggle all these responsibilities? I mean, entrepreneur, photographer, leader, wife, founder of the community over competition movement. How are you caring for those responsibilities, your health and all your loves right now? So truthfully, I carve out 30 minutes every day for me. That's how I do it. And it you know, sometimes looks more like 15 minutes of a 30 minutes, sometimes more like 45 <laughs> minutes of a 30 minutes. But, um, you know, I, I carve out 30 minutes for me every single day. And in different seasons, that 30 minutes is going to look different. So during fertility treatment, it looks more like journaling, doodling and meditation. Now that I'm on break from treatment, it looks like hopping on the bike and cycling every morning. Um, you know, and that does mean that for me, I'm up at 5 a.m. And sometimes like this morning, that 30 minutes was 15 because I hear my baby chirping and I'm like, you know what? He can chirp and chat in his crib for 15. Like mama's getting on the bike and I'm going to sweat (laughs) this out and I just need this time. And for me, you know, I've not always been a super athletic person or physical person or, you know, I was the one that had the gym membership but never went. Like I'm notoriously that person because life is busy, right? But as an adult and in stepping into this season of motherhood, I have just had to force that boundary for myself, like carve out that time and demand of myself that time and and really prioritize it 
Because, you know, that 30 minutes a day for me now is the difference between a really healthy version of me that can show up well and take care of the people in my life and the responsibilities on my plate and a version of me that can't. It is 30 minutes. That That is the differentiator. And so, you know, lately in this season, it really does look like getting on my bike, working out for 30 minutes, carving out that time, and then going about my day. And in that space that I cultivate, I try really hard to show up with the baggage and leave without the baggage, like show up Mm. with what I'm feeling, not try to pretend like it's not there, not try to say, oh, this is my 30 minutes. I have to let everything else go to the wayside. I, I know that works for some people. For me, it's the opposite because oftentimes I can't sleep if I'm overthinking. I can't, you know, move forward if I'm overthinking. So I show up with the overthinking. I show up with the concerns, with the anxieties, with the worries, with the hardships, with the failures. And I, in this season, sweat it out and leave it. I like work and, and let it out and emotionally process and give myself that, that space and that capacity. And then when I have my 30 minutes and it's done, um, for the most part, I've been able to kind of refresh and renew and, and, and move forward and try my best from like that point on to make that day the best that it can be, even with those failures, those concerns, those hardships, that, you know, waiting for that call on on the, the, the beta pregnancy test, waiting, whatever it is that I'm anticipating that's holding me back, I try to still like move forward and just embrace the possibilities of the day. But without that 30 minutes, I'm just, I'm, I'm not the person that I need to be for the community and, and for the people in my life that need me. I'm so tracking with you, Natalie. I am the same way because my husband will even say, you have not had your movement, have you? I'm like, am I being cranky? <laughs> That's he's my like, husband too. Because <laughs> he's like, well, I didn't want to start with that <laughs> wisely. Are you using the Peloton app by chance? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So oh my we, gosh, yeah, game changer. Right? I know. I love, look, I'm a community person. And after my brain Me too. Surgery, yeah, I um, I did my first cycling class probably about eight months after surgery, maybe not even that long. It might've been closer to like six months, but I did my first cycling class after my brain surgery as a way of just trying to work on the recovery process and get back into a movement practice. And I was doing a ton of yoga, but it was the cycling for me was like the first cardiovascular exercise. And I walk into a soul cycle class, which I had never done um, and have never gone since. I went to one But in that class, it was the first time I experienced what it's like to have an instructor. I jokingly call it shouting affirmations at you, but somebody just showing up for you and challenging you to be your unique best, not worry about the other people in the room, not worry about what they're doing or how they're performing, but like showing up as you are and encouraging you. And I was hooked. So I love Peloton. I'm just a kind of become a little bit of a fanatic. There's something about doing it with others and having somebody encouraging you that for me is really motivating and healing. And yeah, it's great. It's such an impressive platform and and truly holistic. Did you do the ride that they did for World Mental Health Day? No, no, I didn't. But I have it bookmarked to do it. Oh, you have to, Natalie. And let me know because... I, I I was like in my family's face. I was like crying and laughing and shouting. It was the most powerful use of movement and words and music I've seen together in that kind of physicality. It's been cool to see like people that are taking the class at the same time as you and all of that. And yeah, but it, it is neat to see someone who's really caring about how can they create experience where we can leave it all on the bike, right? Mm-hmm. Super. Absolutely. So we, 
had a little squirrel moment on the Peloton. But if anyone knows me, I'm just really, really into this experience right now. It's been a game changer for me. So speaking of community, so much of your work in community is in the online space. How do you navigate? And I know you touch on this a lot in just what you share, but how do you navigate comparison in this space that is so notorious for cultivating scarcity and unhealthy competition? Yes. Well, I love when you say scarcity because then you know I'm going to respond with either the Brene Brown version of enoughness or, you yep. know, the Bring sort it. of infamous abundance. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. I know. So w- instead of going that route, what if we tackle it a diff- from a different perspective? You know, competition and and comparison both are not inherently bad things. The reality Amen. here, yeah, I'm glad you agree with me. Not everyone does. Sometimes when we have these conversations, they get heated. Oh, they're come not on, I'm a sports bad. fan. How can you, you gotta, you gotta cheer for your team. You gotta you got be it. all in. You gotta take you got the it. wins and the losses. But when, again, it's when the boundaries around your worthiness get tied up into winning, which I may or may not struggle with. <laughs> um, yeah, I'll do. Right? If we you want do. it. So yes, go ahead. No, I totally am tracking with you. Yes, they're not inherently bad. Um, you know, no. our, our, I, I say this a lot. I say, you know, as human beings, we are built to lo- belong, but we are also created to compete. Our brains are wired because for the survival of the individual and the species to navigate tricky social interactions and social groupings. And I'm not to go totally neuroanthropological on you, but this idea that I know, well, I have a whole chapter in my book on this. Truly, like we, we are ultimately have evolved such that, um, you know, we are created to want to succeed, to want to, you know, gain and and grow and achieve and evolve. That's wired within us, that competitive nature. It, there is a reason why when we do compete or we're in the arena or uh, we perform a task in the company of others who are observing us perform that task, that we actually perform better than if we were mm-hmm. doing it alone, right? Absolutely. There is reason for that. That is, that is ultimately part of our, our wiring as human beings. However, However, um, our brain has not evolved a ton in the last 200, 300 years. Hasn't changed much from our ancestors 200 to 300 years ago. However, our society and our world is unrecognizable. Yes. To the ancestors who this brain evolved to enable them to thrive, they would not have any idea what this device, this phone that we carry in our pocket is, or the amount of content we consume, or how much we know about one another's lives, and not just the people in our village or in our community, but the people in all seasons of life, all around the world, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them that we are confronted with every day. And so I think when we talk about comparison, when we talk about competition, what we're really talking about, and you talk about it in terms of the the entanglement with our worth and our value, I think that's huge. I think that is so critical. I, I also want us to acknowledge that we're talking about it at a scope and a scale that we've perhaps never endured before, never before hmm. in the history of humanity have we been so privy to so much information, information so about much. others, yeah. about what they're doing, what they're achieving, and not through a transparent lens. The internet only tells half the story, right? No one's out there bragging about their failures, bragging about if their mistakes. it's half the story. You yeah, got a it. snippet you got of the it. story. Yeah, you yeah. Got it. It's a curated, you know, tiny, tiny, tiny pinhole view of, of others' lives. And so we create this amalgamation of that false reality curated and, and 
published for the world to see as if it's real and at a scale and a scope we've never consumed before. And so we move from a territory of where comparison can be healthy and competition can be healthy to a space where it is not. And, you know, I look at it kind of like sports, you know, you mentioned sports and um, competition is unhealthy when there's an unfair playing field when yeah. the rules of engagement are not clear and ethical and defined and agreed upon by all parties. So in business, for example, I often talk about how you know healthy competition, for example, would be two people doing the same thing in the same city and respecting ethically their ability to do that, not trying to write false reviews to tear the other business down, not trying to deceive. And like it, we can go to that extreme, but having those, those agreed upon rules, those ethics that we abide by when we compete... And, and my favorite in healthy competition is that it remains in the arena. Healthy competition doesn't leave the arena. It doesn't continue with us when the game is over. A, a good example of this that I love to use, one of my favorite moments, I'm not a huge tennis fan, but it's one of my favorite moments in sports in general, um, is the moment when Naomi Osaka and Coco Goff are playing at the U.S. Uh, Open. And, yeah. you know, every, th- that that entire arena was filled with fans cheering for Coco Goff. She was the underdog. She was, you know, she still is. She's young. Um, She's a pioneer in so many ways. Same with Naomi, by the way, pioneer in so many ways. But you could feel the energy cheering for Coco over and over. And Naomi won. And there is this moment at the end of the match when the reporter comes down and is talking to Naomi about her win. And she kind of, you know, steps to the side and sees Coco kind of crying and like going off to, you know, the locker room to like mourn this loss that that she's had on this world stage. And she walks over to her and she says, join me. Like, I want you to join me. I want you to come up. I want you to bask in this spotlight with me. And Coco's like, no, 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 I can't. And she she says yet again, no, 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 I want you to come with me. I want you um, up here. You deserve this too. And there is no doubt anyone who watched that tennis match knows that those two competitors laid it all out on the court, that they didn't, you know, meekly allow the other to win, that they did not show up as their best self. They competed like their life depended on it when they were on the court. And the minute that game was over, we witnessed the tenets of a true champion. We witnessed the winner say, the competition is over and I see a fellow athlete mourning a loss, another woman who has fought tooth and nail to get on this court, who has endured so much to even be here. And I want to honor her contribution. I want to honor, she honored her parents. She like, there was a moment there of camaraderie between two people setting out to do something extraordinary in the arena. That is healthy competition. So when, when I think about, you know, whether it's as a mother, you know, like the competition in motherhood, the competition in small business ownership, the competition as a leader, <laughs> these feelings of comparison. One of the biggest places where I see in my world, not just the worth and the value, but I see this step from healthy to unhealthy is that we don't keep it in the arena. And oftentimes that it shouldn't be a competition at all. We mistake what is meant to be competitive as something so much more wide in scope and vast in scale. And so in business, there is true competition. You're competing and you know you are maybe the same customer or client could go to either you or to someone else. That's the facts. Whether you're like me and you believe there's more than enough to go around for so many of us, that's what I believe. I really do. I've seen it in my business. Or even if you don't, the reality here is that that com- competition needs to stop at the edge of the arena, at the edge of the business, at the edge of whatever it is that you do 
it does not continue beyond that. And and COVID's been a great example, actually, in my community of small business owners with Rising Tide, with HoneyBook, where we've seen that lived out. We've seen that when a global pandemic threatened to destroy entire parts of our economy and small business owners' livelihoods, the, like they should, the competition didn't matter anymore. It didn't matter whether somebody does the same thing that you do or you know is a, is a direct competitor in your local market. If that competitor is hurting, if their family isn't able to pay their bills, if somebody's not able to put food on the table, we're no longer competitors. We're community. And the arena is so clearly defined when our lives are on the line. The arena mm. becomes much more easy for us to discern and to see when there's a threat that is facing all of us, right? And so one of the things that I want to say in, in regards to your question is, you know, this year has been hell for a lot of people. And, and for a lot of small business owners, you know, it has been one of, if not the hardest year they've ever had. Their entire world's knocked out overnight. Many of my wedding and event industry professional friends have seen an entire year of income and all of their employees and contractors have to navigate, you know, no income coming in for all of this year. And they never could have fathomed it. Some of them had their best years on the books. And yet, as we rise from the ashes of 2020, we have an opportunity of whether or not we want to revert to the comfort of the past or we want to take the lessons learned in this season and move forward in the process of becoming a better version of ourselves. And I truly believe in my heart that this competitive, very highly comparison-driven environment that we operate in as a world, as a society, could really benefit from the lessons we've learned in some of us in this season of letting it stay in the arena of acknowledging the humanity and putting people above the competition, seeing beyond the curation of the internet, acknowledging that there is a struggle that each of us are walking through that oftentimes never gets shared or known. And yet we often treat one another as if our lives are the hard ones and everyone else has it perfect. And we try to measure up to some impossible definition of success. And I think 2020 even amidst so much heartache and pain and unimaginable suffering has also brought a sense for many of us of that humanity and camaraderie and community back to the forefront of our lives, even if for some of us, it's just longing for it and missing for it once again, because we've been without it. Follow-up questions here. So, okay, I'm, I'm in here, I'm in my mind rumbling with leaving it in the arena. I can hear my husband say, does everything have to be a competition or conflict to me? Because you know, I'm always like, you know, that there's a driven part. And I'm like, that's hard to leave it in the arena. And I'm thinking also from a trauma-informed leadership perspective, sometimes physiologically and psychologically, it might be hard. It might take some more inner work mm -hmm. to really define where to leave, you know, to be able to have that capacity to do that, to, mm -hmm. to help the nervous system not be so hypervigilant or to be in that mode of, of having to hustle or to prove or to protect, right? So can you get a little more granular on this, leaving it in the arena? And what does that look like transitioning? And is, it, is this kind of what you were talking about, like where we had these amazing athletes playing a tennis championship and when it's over, the winner called the winner, then we, they left the arena to go for the news, but she called in her competitor and then they celebrated and honored each other. Is that, 
kind of what you're talking about, how to leave that. It's like, they're not the enemy anymore. They're not fighting against them anymore. Then they transition to community versus the competition in the arena. Is, is this what you're going for? And, and then elaborate. Yes. No, I, I think you're, you're definitely hitting the nail on the head on that. I mean, I think it really comes down to not villainizing the person on the other end, not um, seeing them as the enemy. Uh, I do think that that's really critical and important. However, I also mean not enabling it to consume you beyond the scope where it exists. And Ooh. so this kind okay. of goes back, I think, to some of my own experiences with anxiety, with the spiraling, with the, you know, for example, we can we can even use infertility as an example. The feelings of someone else succeeding, meaning that it's robbing me of my joy, robbing me of my opportunity to one day experience that success. If I were to leave my feelings of comparison and competition where they belong, which is not in my relationships, not in my deep connections with friends who are joyfully experiencing pregnancy, right? It does mm -hmm. require conscious work. It requires, I think, a lot of inner work. It also requires acknowledging that as a human, it is natural to feel comparative. It is natural to have that sense of maybe jealousy or longing Again, that that's human. That's very, very there's much big human. There's big data say, there too. Yeah, say I'm pregnant, and for me to go, oh, I'm falling. Mm. Oh, feels like you're stealing my oxygen. Like the, I, I wish so much that I was pregnant with you. Right? That's very, very human. But if I don't kind of enable that that boundary for myself and understanding that those feelings that I'm having um, in the case of comparison, maybe it's that I'm comparing where I wanted to be in this season. I wish I was pregnant in this season to someone who is. If I don't kind of honor that feeling and then also acknowledge that, that it can't consume, it shouldn't continue to rise up, it shouldn't be something that dominates every thought of my day, that consumes every time I see a photograph of my friend, right? That I feel that that jealousy, that bitterness, that enabling, in, and this is just my view, enabling that, those feelings, those, those comparative kind of feelings, the, the competition, those feelings, to escape beyond the bounds of where they belong to come to a place where they consume every thought and every interaction and every way that we walk through the world and every engagement. It can completely destroy us. It can completely change our perspective of others. I think about even the business world a lot in, in this regard. Oh, you know, we've, we've yeah. kind of come to a place where we distrust before we trust rather than trusting and enabling proof to lead us to understand and discern who deserves that trust and not two ways to walk through the world. You walk through the world expecting everyone to deceive and harm you. You walk through the world, maybe the opposite, hoping abundantly that people will surprise you and, and bring about joy and goodness into the world and into your life. I, I There's a really famous Brene Brown quote, quote where she says, you know, if you walk through the world looking for reasons why you don't belong, you're going to find them. And, and you know, the, the opposite is true. For me, and, and getting a little bit more granular here into understanding the boundaries of the arena, I think it both means not villainizing the individual that you feel like you must compete or compare yourself with, but I also think it means keeping it in check. It means cognitively frame, reframing, if necessary, the, the narratives that you enable to consume your mind, right? So if, if you look at someone else and you say, oh, well, 
that person has it all or that person achieved this thing that I wish I could have achieved. They beat me at this, right? Think about like the game. They beat me at this. Mm-hmm. And that's the the narrative that you enable to consume you all the time that expands and, and takes up that space in your mind. Then you walk through the world feeling that way. You make choices because of, of that mindset. Um, whereas, you know, the, the opposite is true as well. If you cognitive reframe your perspective of, of that person and that interaction or feeling that you have towards them and you say, you know, wow, that person achieved that thing or has that thing. And that gives me hope. That gives me hope that for me it could be possible too. Or I'm really happy for them. They worked really hard to get there and they are deserving of that or you know feel trying to turn it can i champion and cheer for them can i become an advocate for them can i encourage and empower them instead of competing and tearing down and taking away from and that simple mindset shift for me personally has been really powerful it has enabled me to navigate really complex emotions around people in my life that I love dearly, but are having different seasons of life than I am. I'm talking on the personal side, but also on the professional side in a way that, you know, it requires conscious work. This is not a subconscious. The subconscious is very much, I find myself reptilian braining it up. Like, you know, like it's natural. It's like, oh, she got that and I didn't. Oh, he has that and I don't. Oh, they had this success and I didn't get there yet. Am I falling behind? Am I not measuring up? The conscious me enables those thoughts to exist and then replaces them. I like to call it the truth, but I, I try to replace it with truth. I try to replace it with, no, if, if someone else gets pregnant, it doesn't mean that I can't. You know, It doesn't mean that I can't be happy for them and sad still for the season I'm in. Those are two separate, distinct realities. Same with business. Somebody else books the client that I wanted. It doesn't mean that um, you know I'm failing in business. It could actually mean that that client was always meant for them and that my client that was meant for me is right around the corner. And that had I taken that client, I couldn't accept the gifts that are coming my way. So I don't know if that helps to clarify. Yeah, it, yeah, it does. I appreciate you going deep. My brain is going a couple different areas. And I'm even thinking about how I conceptualize even those parts of me that envy or that want to keep the competition going. I mean, I think that's when we go from healthy competition to almost this jonesing for the fight all the time. Yes. And and I'm thinking too, even if I don't like the person, let's say there's something else going on, like politics, let's just say, <laughs> maybe we'll toss it out there as we're inter- doing this interview 10 days out of uh, probably I the know, most important you know. election in our country ever. <laughs> but what's helped me is I'm not going to dehumanize hmm. the person. I'm going to fight to defeat. And even if I'm victorious, I am not going to dehumanize ever for my own well-being, for my own values. So as I move out of the arena of casting my vote and and advocating for people to vote and show up in a way, then and helping people understand what's at stake when that particular arena is moved on to other things, how do I maintain the humanity of all that were involved, no matter how egregious, mm. you know, what happened in the arena? I think that sometimes I think of people fighting for their lives, fighting for recovery, fighting for change. I, this is, we're recording this during uh, Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And yes. so just thinking about a lot of that, that gets lost and that sometimes it's hard to leave that there when we're fighting for life and dignity. And the other thing, you said too is that it the arena sometimes doesn't work because 
the rules don't work for everybody in the arena. You got it. And we're seeing that with Black Lives Matter you got it. and really bringing that up too. So we're in a fight even in the arena to redefine the arena right now. Mm-hmm. So there's just a lot of this metaphor that I'll be thinking about <laughs> for a while. And I really... I really appreciate it. And I also see it's a mental health piece to be able to leave the competition in the arena so that we can give our minds and our souls a break from that intensity. We're not meant to always be fighting at the intensity of an elite athlete 24 <laughs> seven, but it's hard to sometimes, and that's, that's where we need to get more support because that's not sustained leadership, right? No. I mean, we can't, it's hard to stay aligned to what matters. What, what can still trip you up and cause you to question your doubt and worthiness? I, you know, actually, I think in kind of the last closing remark that you hit on it, it's the fact that when I don't carve out space to rest and to recover, when I'm always trying to operate at, you know, professional athletic levels 24 seven, whether that's mentally, physically, I deplete, I think the parts of me Mm. that I need to remain strong in order to do the work that I do. And so what trips me up the most is not carving out the time for self-care, not taking my feelings and emotions seriously in the moment and kind of trying to compartmentalize or dismiss or not acknowledge because I feel the need to quote unquote, be the leader in that moment, which is more of of a, a nod to, again, these frameworks and systems of what leadership is sort of stereotypically supposed to be versus what it really should be, which is vulnerable, which is honest, which, you know, is, is very different from a lot of these arenas that are being restructured and these systems that are being torn down and rebuilt, rightfully so. And so for me, the tripping up, I think comes when I don't take care of myself, when I don't nurture myself. And it's so simple, right? It's the basics and we're not superhuman. No, and we're not. And that, that, that capacity really maintaining our capacity. So as we wrap up this conversation and in such a moment of time, how how can we truly be better stewards of the movement you started, the community over competition movement, particularly in the online space? So this is more than just a freaking hashtag. How, how can we better be better stewards of it and really live it? I think it comes down to actively engaging in ways that you can lift up and support others. This movement isn't so much about saying, oh, I agree with it or I agree with the idea of it as it is living it out in your daily life. And to me, that that truly means looking for ways that you can every single day uplift, encourage and support the people in your life who perhaps the world would want you to compete or compare with, or perhaps you've struggled with that in the past and really trying to do the outer work of going out and supporting and encouraging and tending to and nurturing while also acknowledging that that is going to do a hell of a lot for your heart and a hell of a lot for the inner work you're also doing on yourself. And so I I think being a good steward of community over competition truly just means going out and, and looking for ways to support, to encourage, to uplift, to just just be the reason that other people still believe there are good people in the world. Like go mm. out and 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 be that person, be that good person that this world needs. I I don't think it has to be a grand sweeping gesture. I think it can truly be as simple as, you know, so supporting a small business in your community or tipping somebody who is, you know, taking care of you and and you know, maybe that little bit extra is going to support them in in a hard season that you don't even know about or checking in on a friend that you haven't talked to in a while, especially those that are struggling with mental health, even if they can't respond, 
sending the text anyway, checking in using seven seconds out of your day to say, hey, no need to respond, but I want you to know I'm thinking about you. I want you to know that I love you and I care about you. And I know you're going through something tough. So don't even, if you can't respond, there's no guilt. Don't worry about it. You just need to know that I'm thinking about you. You just need to know that I love and I care about you. You know, I think it, it also means working through and cheering for those folks that, like I said, we compare and compete with and really working on, on cultivating communities where we celebrate the wins of others. And so much, so much, so much beyond that as well. But it it goes back to truly, I believe, being someone that does make us believe that there are still good people in the world. And right now in this season, as you mentioned, pivotal, unprecedented, and often I think so challenging of our perception of goodness and kindness and hope for a better future. This year has challenged that and revealed so much ugliness that has always been there. But you know, I think is really starting to to come to light. And some of it that is, you know, being perpetuated by leaders who should be serving and instead are, are causing divisiveness. And so, you know, I, I think it goes back to just really trying to be a good person. And sometimes that means being uncomfortable. Sometimes that means, you know, stepping beyond what you see other leaders doing, like just, just really, truly trying to put more good into the world because I I think community over competition is is at its core all about raising the tide and all about supporting all people and really, really fighting for a better future. Absolutely. And I mean, almost you say being a good person, I think there's an element of being generous, generous with ourselves mm-hmm. in our own humanity and generous with others. And I think we need to see a lot more of, of that. And that's, that's the radicalness of kindness, right? Yes. Which is loving and generous, right? So thank you, Natalie. This has been such a wonderful conversation. I'm so honored and grateful to have a chance to sit, even though it's technology tech, to tech here. I'm really, really grateful for this time. Where can people find you if they want to connect with you and learn more about you and your work? Yes. So I, you can always head to my website, nataliefrank.com. Instagram is truly the platform that I spend too much time on. And that's just <laughs> at Natalie Frank. But I'd also encourage anyone listening who, especially if you're a small business owner or you know a small business owner that could use community, could use a place to get plugged in and get connected to check out Rising Tide Society. That's the work that I do day in and day out. And I absolutely love it. And so if you are interested in learning more about that too, I would encourage you to go to honeybook.com slash rising tide. And you can learn all about our community, get plugged in and find a group near you. Well, Natalie, thank you so much for your time. And so looking forward to seeing more of your goodness that you put out there on the interweb. So thank you again. Thank you. As we wrap up this doozy of a year, I cannot think of a better challenge for us all to choose community over competition. It can be exhausting, even daunting to lead from this lens but it is this back end inner work that is the best fruit for this leadership mindset. It is not possible to choose community over competition if the burdens of jealousy and insecurity continually overwhelm. And maintaining the capacity to hold people accountable and set clear boundaries requires some heavy lifting. It is easier to bulldoze through and focus just on the end game, but without the lens of leading by community over competition, it can leave an aftermath that is destructive dangerous, and deeply lonely. I'm grateful for the gift of Natalie's wisdom and her leading truly by example. Yes, community over competition is more than a hashtag. It is generosity. It is joy. It is the meaningful work that indeed calls us up to make an impact on others that reminds people there is good in this world, beyond metrics, beyond dollars, beyond rankings. 
You have not gotten where you are today by playing it safe or small. You push yourself to be the best and settling feels jarring. As a leader who is all in, you've got some healthy competition in you. You also know it can turn on you and become an obsession or just blur the lines of your boundaries and your sense of worthiness. As a result, when you show up, you want to leave it all on the table. And sometimes this drive can override the sense of community with the consuming desire to win, to be right, to be number one. Finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex polarized world can help you identify the blocks that can keep you from choosing community over competition. Leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is actionable and aligned. When the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then Unburdened Leader Coaching is for you and where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than the status quo. To start your Unburdened Leader Coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. You can find this episode, show notes, and free Unburdened Leader resources, along with ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com.